Hello and welcome to the Humanizing Growth podcast series, brought to you by the Institute for Real Growth. Each week, IIB founders Frank von den Driest and Mark de Swan-Arons will be talking to global leaders and practitioners to discuss what it takes to drive human-centric growth. For more information, visit www.instituteforrealgrowth.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are in the world. And we always have listeners and viewers literally from all around the world. I'm your host today, Mark de Swanarons, one of the founders of the Institute for Real Growth. And I'm very, very happy to welcome a friend and uh, inspiring leader, Kees Kruidhoff. Uh, Kees is somebody that I literally have known for, uh, for over 25 years and seen move from leadership role to leadership role. And even when they were very junior, they were still leadership roles, the way that Case took the role. Always been incredibly impressed with his ability to rally troops around him, rally people that have a course, have a shared course, whether it's a new production line for a margarine or a new e-commerce company. We'll talk about that later. But he has this natural ability to inspire people and then to lead very much from the front. And Case did that as an uh, entrepreneur at Unilever for, uh, I think it was 27 years or something, but a, a long time, and then made the massive move to live kindly, really demonstrating that the entrepreneur can be the entrepreneur. So Case, with that intro, um, welcome. And, uh, and where are you and, and how are you? Yeah, thank you, Mark. And uh, what a great way to be together. And as, uh, as you say, 25 years uh, we have been together on this journey and what you said in the introduction uh, about me, that is the same uh, what uh, I want to say about you because every step what you do, uh, you inspire and you create and you craft from nothing, something always unique and inspiring. So thank you for continuing your personal growth journey and uh, your inspiration into the world. Again, what you have uh, created now is so relevant because ultimately humanizing growth is uh, uh, super, super uh, relevant. So where am I? Um, I am after 20 years having lived all around the world in all continents around the world from the Netherlands to South Africa, Singapore, China, back to South Africa, Brazil, uh, New York, London. Finally, after 20 years, uh, I am back home uh, here in the Netherlands, uh, very close to the sea in a little place called Noordwijk. And, you know, I think uh, COVID does many things, but one of the things that it does, it gets you all the way back into the Maslow pyramid. And that is to be close, to be home, to be with friends and family, close homes. How am I? I am in a state of unbelievable excitement. I'm also in a state of uh, big questions and uh, for the first time, you know, not really knowing where this journey really takes the next curves and the next step ups. And, you know, therefore, how am I? I am probably in the most exciting phase of my life. I see it as the first 50 years are just behind me. And now I'm in the second half of my, uh, you know, journey. And this time I will take everything what is in my backpack as my experience, expertise, uh, and a bit of a network forward into the second phase of my life. And that will be even more exciting than the first phase and the first half of my life. 
Before we actually get to the specifics of it, you talk about excitement and learning and the journey and not quite knowing what is around. And when you don't know what's around the corner or where the next curve or step up is, you need to be able to rely on a purpose. You need to have a compass that actually gives you guidance in un, un, unexpected moments. And so I want to start there. I mean, um, do you have a purpose? When did that become clear? And how has it played a role as you nav navigated all those curves? I have a uh, very clearly defined purpose, you know, in the different phases of my life. So it has sharpened uh, further, but it all starts with my mother. And, you know, my mother has always uh, taught me is that, you know, as a good Calvinistic mother, actually, don't waste your talents and put your talents at service to society. And the notion is that, you know, uh, this uh, how you can always in everything what you do and uh, whether that is in your family life, in your social life, in your work life, in your sports life, in any part of where you are active is to be able to get to your full potential is something which is at the core of the core uh, of uh, my upbringing. And then I had the pleasure to have a, a personal coach and that is uh, Bill George. And Bill George uh, is obviously somebody who uh, and, uh, created an incredible purposeful organization as his time as the CEO for Medtronic. Uh, he teaches at Harvard now. And I had the pleasure to have him as my, uh, as my personal coach. And so the whole thing about your true north and how can you make sure that you're always, you know, keeping your true north uh, at the, uh, the, the north star and you act in line with that, whatever comes uh, on the journey. And so my uh, purpose is that actually, is that I uh, want to uh, go from being always the youngest of the old generation. I want to become the oldest of the next generation. And I want to inspire the generation in terms of what real purposeful business is all around. And I want to give back there where you know my soul is most connected, uh, and that is in the diversity of the world, and especially in Africa. And by doing that, I want to put all of my expertise, experience, and network at play to what my mother says, put my talents at service to society. So let's go to a pivotal moment in your life. Because it's funny, I actually thought of you this week. Probably I was thinking of you all the time because I knew we were going to be talking, but it was subliminal. And I was having a conversation with a, a friend, an NYU professor. NYU is a partner of the Institute for Real Growth. And they have a new professor, a professor of serendipity. And the moment I heard that that position had been created, I said, I want to meet this guy. And uh, he's a young, enthusiastic German professor, Christian Bush. I have something very strong with serendipity. My grandfather said it was his favorite word because it explained his life. I thought of you and serendipity because one of the themes that Christian Bush actually talks about is that things happen around us all the time. That's a fact. You can't change it. But what's different about serendipitous people is two things. One, they recognize the things that are happening around them. And two, they act on them. And actually, he adds a third. They actually accelerate them. They try and emphasize them. And he said, the way you do that is by talking to your sister and your, your brother's friends about what you want to do. Now back to your pivotal moment. You took a step back out of Unilever after a very big decision, of course. And you wrote a letter. I, I hope you don't mind me sharing this. To 
I think everybody you knew closely. I got it too, and it was around Christmas, so it was a moment that you were reflecting, but it was also a moment that everyone was reflecting, and it landed very well because in it, you spoke of your purpose, but you also spoke about all the things that you were thinking about and that you were open to. And according to Christian Bush, that would be an invitation for ideas. That would be a opening up yourself to serendipitous moments. Can you talk a little bit about that important moment and also what you recognize from what I just said? You know, I strongly believe as well is that, you know, there are so many forces at work and uh, serendipity is an uh, absolute uh, critical one. I love the fact is this notion about once you recognize it, it is for you uh, and your responsibility to accelerate it. So the story is, is that, you know, uh, on the 28th of uh, November 2018, Actually, uh, the chairman of Unilever at that time, uh, Sarah Marijn Deckers, uh, he gave me this phone call and he said, Sarah, I have bad news for you. Uh, you will not become the next CEO of Unilever. Mm. And, you know, 27 years, I, I had always in my mind, and this was very strange. When I started working in February 1993, I walked into that office in Unilever in the Netherlands. And I just said to myself and Actually, I was very open always on it, also to others. I want to become, and I will become the CEO of this company. And, you know, it was obviously, thinking back, it was quite ludicrous. But anyway, uh, that was uh, who I am and uh, what I uh, said. So 27 years later, you know, having become so close to something which I aspire deeply. I love Unilever as a business. I think it's one of the most... Uh, unbelievable businesses and people and history and uh, making um, uh, the, uh, the the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan into 180 uh, countries and two and a half billion people every day. It's just an unbelievable, unbelievable organization. And being so absolutely passionate about it and then getting that uh, phone call obviously was a big disappointment. And so uh, I actually remembers that I was having uh, dinner with my uh, beautiful wife, with Sabine, and we were sitting at the Shard uh, in London, overlooking actually the Unilever head office. And, you know, I came back after this uh, phone call to her and I said, uh, you know, well, uh, bad news. And we said, just on this day next year, we will sit together and we will decide then what to do. And so what I did first is six months of, you know, helping Alan to get into his, uh, into his role, handing over uh, my job uh, to actually talking about serendipity to my very best friend, Peter Terkulve, who is now the president of, uh, of home care at Unilever. And then, you know, I created my own space, six months of sabbatical. And I first traveled with my five uh, daughters one by one to a location of their choice and then to, uh, with Sabine and I did one thing which basically uh, with hindsight really worked well because then many people came and say you know would you be interested in and then all kinds of very diverse things came and I did one thing and I said to all of them I will push all the opportunities all the way until the 28th of November and then I will decide again and to your point, Mark, on serendipity, so many things then started to move into pieces, which basically started to come uh, to me. And one of this was actually at the moment where uh, Roger Leinhardt, he came to me 
and he started to talk about uh, live kindly collective and plant-based food and and suddenly all these things just came together uh, because I had very clear um, uh, assumptions and criteria for the next step and that was the day that I decided and you're absolutely right uh, in the reflection I love to write uh, at the end of the year or at the beginning of the year uh, a letter and I did it again this year uh, in terms of you know what has all happened and the moment of reflection uh, was there and it was all about serendipity coming together uh, and starting the Live Kindly Collective. Nah, fantastic. Beautiful how the pieces come together, but it took you to act on them. And that's the, the, the overriding uh, lesson here. We're, we're in a very different world now than the moment you wrote that letter. We're at a, you know, a year in. Some places, the light is clearly at the end of the tunnel, we think. Other places, it doesn't feel like that at all. And it actually feels like we're falling into a third wave. Before we actually go and talk about what Live Kindly is trying to do, I'd like to just have your view on what's what's happened over the last year. What have you seen? What do you think? What do you think was beautiful that's happened? What are the things that you think will stay with us forever? And just what's the what's the business world we're now all part of? What's the actually not just the business world, the world? Yeah. So you know, of course, uh, unprecedented uh, times and. Uh, we all uh, first go and say, you know, what happens into a crisis, uh, as we just already said, you know, Maslow uh, drives everybody to uh, the uh, the management of the crisis. And that is being close to families and making sure that the safety uh, is there. And then once that's the case, everybody starts to say, you know, what is then the safety uh, and therefore, you know, taking care of uh, the, of companies. Uh, and making sure is that uh, the health crisis did not become either a food crisis or um, uh, unintended uh, further consequence crisis. I do believe as well is that there are indeed uh, in the pain of the pandemic uh, that there are also absolute learnings and uh, elements which the world will actually take forward into its next phase of its development. And you know, obviously, uh, the consciousness of the world uh, has increased throughout the pandemic. And, you know, one of the elements is that viruses uh, is actually uh, in almost all of the cases, uh, a crisis coming from animal and, uh, and humans in terms of the food system. At the same time, you know, the consciousness in the world also increased when uh, we saw is that the swans were uh, back uh, in the canals in, uh, in Venice. And we started to feel that uh, the Mother Earth could start to breathe again a little bit. And so I think it's in, in terms of some of the uh, real learnings out of uh, the pandemic is this notion about, you know, uh, reflection of pause uh, and, you know, the power of the pause, I think, is absolutely part of this. The second part of this is that all the trends which were already there, you know, just totally accelerated. Look at the digitization of the world. And, you know, imagine if this would have happened 25 years ago, if we have now a three and a half percent decrease uh, in our uh, GDP, it would have been disastrous if we not have the digitization. And that acceleration obviously helped. And we, uh, if we start to talk about, you know, uh, truly uh, climate change, and inequality being the biggest uh, issues to solve for us as leaders in our phase of our uh, contribution to society. You know, I think this has helped us enormously in terms of mindset, 
leadership shift. You look at uh, the number of countries who have now said net positive, whether it is in China or in Japan or in Europe. Uh, now, luckily, the U.S. getting back into uh, in, in, into that group of leaders as countries. And so I do believe is that this power of the pause, the reflection, and then, you know, going forward actually helps us. I sometimes have said is that, you know, somebody has uh, sent us all into our rooms as parents send naughty children and they just need to reflect on what they have done wrong. And when you are actually back calm and reflective, you can get out of uh, your uh, room. And so I think that is a, a thought that, you know, we are almost ready to uh, go back and uh, make sure is that we have learned from it and that we go not back into the old, but we rejuvenate into the next. Uh, that's so interesting because if, if you look at the world around and you've talked a little bit about uh, sort of the forces for change, the pause, I hadn't really heard of the power of the pause. I love that expression. One of the things that happened this week that excited me in that realm, contrary to just sort of the chairman of uh, BlackRock demanding higher transparency around the social and human aspects of companies, uh, the SEC acting chair actually put out a document with requests for comments, which is their first step of really changing things in the reporting world. Well, in terms of consumer expectations, because now we're getting to the world which Live Kindly is stepping into, um, what, what do you think there has changed in the way that they look at companies, what they demand of companies? Yeah, you know, uh, the moment that stepped into and really becoming a founder and entrepreneur and starting literally from nothing, absolutely nothing, where we said, you know, we want to build a company which is the global preeminent plant-based food company uh, with the mission to make plant-based eating and plant-based living the new norm. When you start that, you know, the first thing is obviously around, you know, where do you get capital from? The logic is, is that if you have an attractive market, if you have an innovative model, and if you have a superior team, is that money uh, will shift. But what was really interesting is that within 12 uh, months is that we have fundraised over half a billion US dollars. And, you know, when you think about that, the size of that capital, but also, you know, all about conscious capitalism, it's really totally mission aligned. And so this uh, the notion about how the capital starts to shift into, you know, areas of uh, business as a force for good was at least in our experience in the last, uh, last 12 uh, months was absolutely amazing. So I think uh, we are uh, really about uh, seeing this shift. Uh, the ESG investment uh, uh, starts to still be a, an ESG investment versus you know, all the investment needs to shift into, into where purpose and performance are actually one and the same thing. What I do believe is that we have seen a systemic shift over the last sort of uh, three to five years with an acceleration in the last 12 months. And now capital actually is uh, starting to shift into a force for good. Look, we see the logo behind you. You've referred to it a few times already, but uh, would you just do the proper introduction? What is Live Kindly? Where does it come from? I, I think everybody wants to know a little bit more. You know, when we uh, when we started this and uh, Roger Leinhardt came to me and uh, he is actually a serial entrepreneur as, as a Swiss guy. And he made lots of money in his early phase of his career. 
starting businesses and then selling it. Uh, and he had a sabbatical. And in that sabbatical, he had the pivotal moment that he said, you know, uh, I really want to uh, help. And the biggest way I can do is uh, actually to take the animal out of the food system. And so, you know, he started with a venture capital company called Blue Horizon. And that started to invest seed investment in Beyond and Impossible and all of those. And that became actually as Blue Horizon became the biggest venture capital company in plant-based food around uh, the world. Then he realized is that this was all great. And what was also true is that many of these companies were not set up for real global scale. And then he said, you know, I want to do it from scratch in a global scaling the way. And so he came to me and said, you know, with our combined capabilities and experience, this is the way uh, to really start this. Then we have the logic that we want to become the preeminent global plant-based food business. We have as as a mission to make plant-based living the new norm by inspiring people to live kindly for humanity for our home and those who share it with us. And so humanity is obviously for generations to come and the health part and the benefits of plant-based eating. Our home is the planet and to give the planet a voice. And then uh, those who share it with us are the animals uh, and are basically those uh, who are uh, the most vulnerable. And so what we did with the first part of the fundraising is that we, we acquired five companies. A media company, which is livekindly.com, which is the voice of plant-based living. And then four different brands and companies, which is Like Meat in Germany, Oomph in Sweden, Fries in South Africa, and No Meat in the UK. And that is why we are called a Live Kindly Collective. This is not just a company, but we wanted to voice that this is a movement, that this is actually a collective coming together. And what comes together is founders, entrepreneurs, and global leaders, because all of those who actually founded these brands and companies, which I've just mentioned, all of them are still in part of the company, but now as an integral part of the company. And we have combined that with global leaders. So we have 75 years of experience, expertise of plant-based food combined with hundreds of years of people who have been all around the world being part of the global food uh, CPG industry. And so myself, but also our chief marketing officer uh, who has worked for decades uh, for Unilever, of our chief uh, finance officer who actually was uh, the CFO globally for Kraft Heinz, or the lady who runs uh, China who has been part of McCain and Cargill and Coke. And so really that has come together. So that's founders, entrepreneurs, and global leaders come together. And it is a portfolio of brands, which is global, regional, and local brands, which is started, but obviously uh, has the intent to be able to really be significant going into, uh, into the future. And as I said, it is a combination of a media company and a foods company. So that's the collective. And the last one, this is a collective because we create partnerships all across from upstream all the way downstream uh, to the consumers. And that is why uh, it represents all the thoughts around what we want to do. And it is very much global. It is very much up and down the value chain, but it is very focused in terms of plant-based alternative meat. 
Now, the, the reality is most of the people living, uh, listening and viewing us now are part of big organizations. And so they look at you and in many ways, they will discount all the things that you're able to do because, yeah, he has no restrictions. He's the CEO and chairman and can get it done. And I, look at me uh, and the company I'm in and nothing's possible here. But actually, you did this all those years in Unilever. So let's talk to that. What are the implications for big organizations and how they partner and how they structure perhaps even? I personally have always uh, said within Unilever is that you can uh, really be the, dis the internal disruptor. And, you know, uh, changing and creating new business models within a current system is something which is, of course, more difficult because you have the whole legacy business part of it. But definitely it is important is that you have leaders who create as internal disruptors into the organization. And this notion about the joy to disrupt rather than to be disrupted, I always thought it was a part of that. And so in the Unilever, when I was the president for Unilever North America, we created new ways of business models. And the world suddenly woke up when we acquired the Dollar Shave Club. And that was something which was very unique. You know, it was direct to consumer. It was uh, into shaving. There were many, many aspects of that. And I think it was very iconic because actually it said, we as Unilever, uh, we made it very clear is that we were serious about direct to consumer, digital data, new business models. And so I think it starts from the notion is that it is really from within as much possible uh, as you can do it uh, from the outside. The second point, I think, uh, this notion about, you know, how you create a truly total uh, system change through transforma transformation in, uh, uh, in, in collectives. And, you know, what you see is, uh, for example, is that there is now set up a food collective, uh, which talks about, you know, how can we create by an end-to-end -end value chain, how you can create system change. And when we were in Unilever, you know, we were a sizable business, but often what you realize is that despite your size, you still are not big enough to be able to shift total systems. And I think this notion about putting collectives together, whatever the way of that networks is, you can do that as big companies and as small companies. And the combination is even better. And once it comes together, you put the system in the room type of logic, and then you can really help uh, to transform industries. And I think, you know, when you look at it uh, on some of the raw materials, uh, you have seen that really happening. And I think it's our responsibility as leaders and as business people to be able to think about, you know, how we can create a collective of companies who help to shift total systems. So if you don't mind, I want to really dive in a little bit more there because there's so many people that ask us for case studies and best practices around bringing new units into a big company and not killing them. Like the Kashi experience is one that everybody uh, maybe, actually maybe not, knows about. Uh, they were bought they were brought to the corporate headquarters while they before were based on the West Coast and they literally almost died as a company, as a brand, and they reversed everything. How... Can a big organization, and I hope you don't mind me asking a few questions about your Unilever experience too, how can they maintain all the positives of the units that they're bringing in, the groups that they're bringing in, the tribes, without killing them? So learning from them, 
but also helping them without killing them. How do you do that? Yeah, so, no, I, I absolutely uh, love uh, uh, still talking about the Unilever time. And, you know, I hope actually that the Unilever team doesn't uh, uh, mind. But uh, these are the things which I always said when I was inside of Unilever as well. So spare me if, uh, if it's not relevant anymore. But the point being, you know, uh, the first acquisition which we did in uh, Unilever North America was Talenti ice cream. And it was a very unique case because there were beautiful founders and they absolutely wanted to become part of Unilever, but they were so worried because actually they had created Belvedere Vodka before and they sold it. The acquired company, uh, they had a very, very bad experience of becoming part of a bigger group. And actually, when we put them uh, as part of uh, the Unilever business, they had one of the best times they had because they continued to feel as that they were actually... Uh, the ones who were running the business, but using uh, the big mothership for there where it uh, was best. And when, you know, seventh generation became part uh, of the Unilever family, actually we had the same. We always talked about 100% separate and 100% integrated. And in the beginning, people said, well, but that's impossible. But actually in the operations, it is possible. And so uh, they stayed in Vermont, the culture and the community uh, really stayed very special there. And at the same time, it had the benefit in terms of global rollout and, you know, the megaphone uh, of their voice. Suddenly uh, they had a louder voice of that, what their mission was all about. And so uh, that is by design, uh, you can create and, and keep, you know, at, uh, and separate uh, and integrated, and so you, you get the benefits uh, uh, or, or the benefit of all. So, if I can paraphrase a little bit, it sounds like you're almost giving the um, responsibility for deciding the degree of integration to the unit, to the unit you're bringing in to say, use of us what you want to, what you think help, but we're not going to tell you it because otherwise, maybe killing of the cultures might take place. So now you have in Unilever, you bought 10, 15 companies. You've got all these smart people, the Talenti owners, the Dollar Shave Club owner, and all these other founders around. Uh, has the company, I, I once heard that the company actually brings them together to uh, advise the overall company and sort of kick their butt. Is that what happens? No, not at all to kick their butt. But uh, it was true, actually, is that we brought many of these founders who were still part of the business together and to get the learnings and say, you know, what does it do and uh, how it helps to create, uh, uh, you know, the culture of uh, founders mentality. And, you know, uh, if I look at uh, what we do in Live Kindly uh, Collective and we're keeping the founders in there and we make sure is that whilst, you know, we integrate the back end and you get the scale because very often, you know, mm -hmm. founders, uh, they have uh, obviously the entrepreneurial part. It is their personal money. There's all kinds of uh, founder mentality benefits in there. But there's obviously very often also a capability issue around the, how do you create scale and uh, how do you set up infrastructure? And so if you combine that, actually, uh, you get the benefit of all. So what we are putting in place is global IT infrastructures, the network of manufacturing in so that people can do what they love most. And that is uh, the notion of building the brands and continuing to drive the mission and uh, being uh, the voice of that movement. These are, you know, more of networked organizations where actually uh, you put structure, but a very, very uh, loose part 
on top of that, which actually gets uh, the benefit of both the founder's mentality and the benefit of the global scale into one system. Actually, it reminds me, one of our IRG uh, founders, uh, the biggest uh, and original founder is WPP, the uh, agency network. That's what Mark Reed talks a lot about, uh, really taking a lot of the stuff away that founders of agencies of creative hotshops don't want to be thinking about, probably aren't very good at, and, and actually just taking all that stuff off their plate and letting them get on with the uh, the transformation. You, you, you're now in a place where everybody clearly signs on for a, a vision of where the world is going. But many people listening are in organizations that are still cynical, despite the SEC changes and so forth, that actually purpose and performance somehow are competing. That if you live a purpose of you build a purposeful company, you're building in inefficiencies, you're going to be less competitive. How do you deal with that cynical perspective and, and perhaps just resistant investor force as a leader that's trying to drive business for good? Yeah, you know, for us, there is zero trade-off in the system uh, because purpose is at the core. Every plant-based chicken which we sell actually means that we have a positive impact. You know, if you look at it only in chicken, and uh, many people talk about cow and the beef, uh, but actually even in chicken, which is the hardest comparison, carbon footprint is seven times better. Uh, The water is five times uh, better of the total end-to-end value chain and the land use three times better. So I think is that... There are many actually uh, economic systems where, you know, relevance, growth, performance and contribution as such are absolutely 100% linked. And I think it all comes back to where is the consumer and the consumer demand. And you see is that we are blessed with uh, the best next generation to come. If you think about millennials or Gen Z, the consciousness of the world, the way they think, where digitization and transparency has become such an inherent part of uh, life and therefore support into all this. We see this actually again in the plant-based food industry, where especially daughters between, you know, 12 and 17 years, they come uh, home to their parents and say, I have changed my mind. I'm not going to eat animals anymore. And they are well-educated there in the consciousness of where that is. It's very interesting to see how that is all the way from China to the US, to South Africa, to the UK and Germany and the likes. And so I think is that there are many, many businesses where you see is that this is 100% purpose at the core and that these businesses are growing and are accelerating. The cost of inaction starts to become higher than the cost of action. And so if we really talk about true cost in the system, You know, uh, there will be obviously a a meat tax into the future. We've heard sugar tax for years and years and years. We all thought it would never come. Well, there it is in Mexico. And so this notion about true cost in the system, look at the EU Green Deal. And so therefore, you know, the economic logic of the virtuous circles are absolutely happening because suddenly you get a double whammy. Think about it in animal versus plant-based again. At the moment, lots of subsidies are there in terms of the dairy or in the meat industry. And actually, you will get a double uh, whammy if that goes from subsidy to tax. On the other hand, if you do the other way around in plant-based, you know, at the moment, there's not enough scale in there. So it's still a premium price. At the same time, if the scale goes up and therefore cost goes down, also you get carbon uh, credits because the plants are putting carbon positive 
into the soil, which means you're getting a profit pool into this industry, which is all around carbon tax. At the moment, $40 per ton will become $100 per ton into the future. So you get new profit pools. So I believe the bigger thing for everybody listening and thinking about how and where next generation growth models, what is the next model in the system, actually, you think about it from the foresight, what will happen to the industry? And it is always from the consumer first, but there is an economic system behind it, which actually really drives the totality of performance and purpose being one and the same thing. You state that very clearly. You obviously led that mission now and in your previous role, but then there's lots of people around you that just aren't there yet. I want to talk a little bit about the actual leadership. What are your experiences? What are your best practices on how to create a movement? What does it take to get change in a big organization? A very, very big question. And it all it all starts with character and people who have courage to uh, to stand uh, out. And I think is that the most important thing. Once you are driven from your internal purpose and you're just convinced about it, you know, then uh, I have always thought people can judge whatever they want, but, you know, this is just who I am. And I think is that being authentic uh, you uh, and being that one individual in every circumstances, whether you're at home, whether you're with your friends, whatever community. So I think that's uh, the most important part is that is to stay very close to who you are, to your beliefs and to your uh, to, to your passion system. The second uh, one is that I think is that being committed to each other's success. I just have heard that 20 years ago. And I think this is really where it is, is true. And that, you know, uh, having the ability to be connected and make sure is that you have that at heart and truly at heart, you know, people uh, feel that. Uh, the responsibility which I have now with a company from startup to scale up uh, towards uh, hopefully a, a multi-billion multinational, you know, it's a big responsibility because to many people, you know, we go and we say, come and join. And so they resign and they come and join this movement. And we can only uh, have that, uh, obviously, if they say, you know, I choose to be part of it. And it is amazing how many people actually believe. Uh, and I think it is for, for three reasons. The first one is that they obviously believe uh, in the business model and the purpose. The second one is that uh, they believe uh, uh, me as, uh, as a leader is that they will just really go and uh, really jump to the, the unknown. And the third one is that it is truly uh, the community of people which we are bringing together. And so uh, out of uh, the first um, sort of extended leadership team, we have 54 people, 27 women, 27 men, 18 nationalities. You know, people look at that and say, wow, you know, this is exciting. And so I think is that, you know, when you peel it all down, of course, uh, this is about uh, one, it is about making a difference. It is about personal development and it is about having fun because uh, don't uh, forget, you know, this notion about the joy of business and having fun needs to be a very important, at least for me, uh, integral part of it. 
listening to you talk, I think, you know, we, we share a heritage in Holland and there's a Calvinistic quality to Holland, which you've mentioned, which is also people uh, being oversensitive to whatever uh, movements start, the, the almost natural reaction is to say, whoa, let's take it easy. And I, I think we both enforce that. It's a significant part of the IRG program to actually talk about uh, the leading change to an organization. Our program and the listeners and the viewers are mostly marketers. You, a marketer from day one, but now you're a CEO and have been an overall general manager for a long time. Uh, but I'd like you to look at the marketing role for a second. One, as businesses move towards a force of being a force for good, uh, as the businesses are even considering that role, fighting the cynicism of either shareholders or the finance function or whoever it is in the company that's resistant to the change. And then maybe even towards the outside stakeholders, what's the role of marketing in this yeah. moving towards being a force of good? To put the marketing uh, person uh, really with the right voice around the table and uh, calling it humanizing the growth and making sure is that it represents actually the relevance in society, I think is absolutely fundamental and critical. It starts from the main role, obviously, uh, as the head of marketing is to make sure is that you are really consumer insight and foresight driven and uh, that you represent that voice into the organization. Mm. And so the thought around relevance and therefore being part of growth is where it all starts. And so the ultimate part What I think is the most difficult and the most important part is to be able to get at the heart of your economic system, i.e. there where the value is being created, that you put purpose at the heart of your value creation. And so when we talk about fast-moving consumer goods, obviously, you know, where the real money, where the real value is being created is through brand, brand equity, and their attributes. And so therefore, I believe the ultimate and most important role in the organization to be able to get purpose at the heart of your business system is through the marketing role, because you need to put it at the core of your brand positioning and your mix. So that indeed, Ben and Jerry's is now not only the best tasting uh, chunky ice cream, but also has attributes of shared prosperity. And the moment that consumers are actually wanting to pay a premium for that and having loyalty and pricing power in it, then you come to the heart of the economic system. And so therefore, ultimately, you know, the marketing role where this gets integrated into the proposition is the single and most fundamental element of uh, where, as where purpose and performance, relevance and growth will sit. How many of the marketers that you know can actually play that role versus being part of the brand? We have our own metrics, uh, googly goog world. I think when you go back to what I've just said, it comes with a prerequisite is that you understand uh, very deeply, you know, where a consumer sent sentiment sits and, you know, consumer trends and the relevance uh, in society. And that it is not about today, but it is indeed about looking around the corner and So I think it's actually the two elements which are the most important ones for marketers to think about is this notion about uh, seeing and looking around uh, the corner, looking right. at the early seats where we already recognize 
is that these extreme consumers are actually today extreme, but uh, the mass will become. And so I think to spot that as an intuition into that, I think is the first uh, very critical one. And then the second one is crafting brands, propositions, and integrate it in a way is that it sits in there. And that is always very difficult because we've always learned as marketeers, we need to be single-minded. And, you know, uh, if you get too many dead messages, you dilute it. The reality is, if you overlay this with the digital revolution, you can segment it to that element where it actually for that uh, specific individual consumer makes sense. So I think is that these elements are putting the way, uh, the way you frame it. Uh, the second one is crafting uh, the integrated brand and digitization is one and the same thing to, uh, to bring that together. Again, to make it specific for us, we have a brand which is called Like Meat in Germany. It's uh, the market leader in plant-based chicken. And the reality there is, is that it really helps consumers to enjoy. They love meat. And we actually, we don't say, don't do that. We actually hero that. We celebrate that. And we say, you, you know, you can have all that in a plant-based way. And I think is that these elements, you know, are now sitting in trends of society and at the same time, uh, really how you can make the brand positioning and the mix really sharpened into uh, these, uh, these individual elements of the attributes of the brand. So I, I want to end with one or two questions about you and perhaps, you know, we could be accused of only focusing on all the positive things, but life has major setbacks. I think, uh, and I salute you for starting with that massive change moment in your life and the disappointment of being told you're not going to be the CEO. Um, but I, I, I'd love to um, just indeed take that human aspect as a leader now and say, okay, you've achieved more than many. There's lots of people listening in and they're sitting at home behind the Zoom screen still again for the 50th time this week. Um, the interaction has gone with other disciplines other than maybe indeed a Zoom meeting for an hour or not. Can you talk about some of the lessons that you've learned the, the, the hard way and how they now actually help you as you build out your leadership role? What are the, 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 the hard lessons learned? I am an absolute optimist. Uh, as uh, Tutu always says, he is a, a prisoner of hope. And so I like to, uh, to frame that as uh, what I've uh, learned, because much uh, of what I've always uh, realized is that what you really envision, uh, that will become a reality. But, you know, there's obviously a very big uh, gap once that you envision it and are so passionate about it, it is also uh, is where the biggest pain uh, will uh, will sit. And I think it's that, you know, this COVID has, uh, has shown that uh, once again, uh, where you really understand that even when you put everything what you have into a space, that still things uh, really can go into a complete uh, different way and that there are uh, bigger uh, elements at play. And I think it's that this notion, you know, when you look at it uh, in society, uh, you see again, you know, half a billion people going back into poverty. These are the elements where if I look at much of what we always say, you know, we as business and it is all about making progress, but that at the end, you know, where is the progress? And I think that is one of the, one of the elements. To make it very personal there, 
You know, yeah. if you uh, if you look at uh, my personal journey uh, in South Africa and what uh, we have uh, left behind there, and then you know what uh, sometimes the reality uh, is there. You know, uh, we have an adopted uh, Zulu daughter, uh, and you see, you know, what an impact. Uh, she lives in a township in uh, South Africa. You see what an impact it has there in terms of, you know, uh, the stress into the system, the stress with, that uh, gets uh, uh, also in our personal life. You know, these things are suddenly a new reality. Personally, you know, I get lots of energy from people and I hope to give some energy to people. And, uh, you know, the frustrating part of, you know, what we are doing uh, now in this uh, Zoom part, eagerness to be able to move on and create the next part. You know, I think is that we are all uh, very much stressed and, and in pain on that. I personally believe is that uh, the emotional bank account uh, is getting down and down on relationships. And so uh, that, that means is that it will become even more difficult. You know, we see that in building our business on the 9th and 10th of March, we were actually with 100 people in New York City from all around the world. Can you imagine? And on the 12th of March, the world went into a lockdown. And mm. the notion about how and where uh, we have the difficulty to build a community, to build relationships uh, in there. I've never seen in my life. I've never seen our CFO physically in my life or our chief HR officer. Uh, mm. uh, by the way, she came into the business uh, and has uh, uh, gone out of the business already. I've never seen her in my life. And these are things which uh, is very, very much where this phase needs to end because, you know, we really need to turn the page and create uh, the next chapter. When you start up a small business, you know, and the factory suddenly can't run, you know, because of COVID and it stops completely and you have a little, little business, it was actually very close of these moments that it actually just stops your entire uh, startup. And so uh, these are real moments of uh, feeling vulnerable uh, into a system which you always have thought about is that you can, whenever you put your talents and passion in, is that you can create it. But there are very vulnerable feeling and uh, vulnerable moments in there. Case, we could probably keep going for three hours. There's questions for at least another two. Uh, most of them are the zooming in on the industry that you've entered. And, and of course, uh, my goal was not that, but was really to talk about leadership lessons. Now, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. And I know the audience really, really appreciates it. There's lots of comments there. Lots of questions for the future, but our time's run out. Kees Kruithoff, have a great weekend and a big thank you. Thank you. Great to see you as always, Mark. Take care. Bye-bye.